and chapter 34. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. And I read from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, just like the first. And I will write on those tablets the words that were... Sorry about that. Let's continue. The words that I... I knew that'll get our attention this morning. You know, the last time Moses asked God, he said, show me your glory. And God said to Moses, no one can see my glory and live. You'll die. That's just like me asking, can you take me? I love the sun. This is not my tan, by the way. And I love the sun. Uh, could, could you take me one mile away from the sun? I'd like to be a mile away from the sun. And you would say, you'll die. A mile away from the source of all energy, you will just evaporate. Now, that's the physical aspect. But what we're going to talk today is about the glory of God. And the fact that that glory... Moses encountered in some form the manifest presence of God. And you know what else? Moses had to hide his face. I almost entitled this sermon, Moses and his face mask. But I thought it will give mixed signals, so I didn't want to have that as my title. Especially for such a very important sermon. This is the last before we celebrate Good Friday and uh, Easter. And uh, from now on, you will see a lot of repetition that's taking place. There's a whole book called Deuteronomy, which means there's a lot of repetition in Scripture. But where I'd like to highlight a few things today in our study. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. The book of Exodus actually is the story of Moses, the greatest leader and lawgiver in Israel. But we're also going to see a little bit that Exodus is the story about the people of God. The birth of a nation, as it were. God's covenant with his people, which is now renewed in this text. But apart from the fact that it's about the people of God and how they relate to the covenant, apart from the fact that Moses, the leader and lawgiver, is soon going to fade away, I want to show us that ultimately... It's about the glory of God. It's about God and His glory. And I think at Chantilly Bible Church, we have a lot of things happening. We have a lot of leaders and necessary staff. I believe that this sermon is to address not only leaders, but us as a people to remember what it's all about. So, if you could turn now in, my, in your Bibles, if you can see it better, let me read what happens. Now, Moses goes up. God actually takes the initiative, that's grace, tells Moses to come. This is after the golden calf that they worshipped, this bull calf, uh, and uh, gave all their jewelry, and Moses comes down, gets mad, and breaks that tablet. He just smashes it, he pulverizes it, and he puts it in the water and says, like, drink this. You won't get the gold back. That's how upset he was. But then God calls Moses up to the mountain, and he says, tell the others to stay away, Moses, because my glory will pass by. And you know, as I get older, 
two or three years, I'll be 60. And now I have what they call prescription glasses. But I do drive up and down from Liberty, and now I have to wear UV glasses, you know, the ultraviolet, these beams in the night and early morning just flash. And uh, I, glycomia, I've got to be careful with my eyes as I grow older. This glory of God is such a consuming fire that I've entitled this sermon a little bit more mildly than Moses and his face mask. I've called it coming face to face with God. There's this awesome statement in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 10 that is so astounding. It says that there was never a prophet like Moses in Israel whom God knew face to face. He talked to God like a friend would, face to face. Now that's an Hebrew idiom which means it gives God form, anthropomorphism. It gives him a description of a face and hand and all that. In order to say Moses was very close to God, there was this intimacy he shared with God. And I pray that this sermon will draw us closer to God in more ways than one. But also I want to go to the New Testament to another verse. It's the verse of someone who was very close to Jesus, our Lord. In fact, he leant on Jesus' breast. And he kind of heard all the whispers that Jesus made. He was one of the youngest of the disciples. He was the disciple whom Jesus trusted, made part of the inner circle. In fact, Jesus entrusted his own mother at his death to this disciple. He was, church, his name was? John. Yeah, if you answer early, we finish early too. So um, his name was John. And John says this in John chapter 1 and verse 14. We have seen his glory. Whose glory? The glory of the only begotten, the monogenes, the one of a kind, from the Father, full of grace and truth. I've been so drawn towards this two aspects of God's glory, grace and truth. I literally named our two daughters, Caris and Aletheia, grace and truth. To remind me of the importance in which God comes to us. But let's look at this story. The Exodus is basically the story of Moses, but it's actually the story of God. God revealing himself to his people. Theologically, there are two aspects of God's being. Ontologically, in his being, there are two aspects. There's one aspect which we call his natural or incommunicable aspects. For example, God is omniscient, omnipotent, and he's omnipresent, okay? He's eternal, and he's immutable. Now, if you don't know those words, don't worry. Uh, most blessed are you. But when you think of all these things, these things are not transferable attributes of God. Now, we aspire towards that. God's given us a lot of wisdom and power, but not in the ultimate absolute sense. But there's the other aspect of God, if you study theology, it's called the moral aspects of God. And there are these communicable aspects. If one is the fact that God is great, last week, uh, a week before, I was actually in Pakistan and Afghanistan border. And I'll tell you uh, what I was doing in a minute. But everywhere I went, uh, Allah Akbar, you know, God is great. Everybody know every religion says God is great. But there's something about our faith that says God became small. God relates to us. God is good. 
yes, God is good. And it's this latter aspect of God's being that Moses not only experienced but communicates through the law, mediates it in more ways than one. We're going to look at that. Now, what do we see? What do we learn overarching these things? Well, first of all, we realize uh, God's people uh, blow it. Even while God's finger writes this ten words, as it were, on stone, on the side of a rock, the people with Aaron are breaking the very first two commandments. I am the Lord your God. There is no other God besides me. Right? And they're like, yeah, let's make another God. A golden calf. You shall not make any graven image of any. Let's make this. Take our gold. Give it to us. You see that church? It tells us something about the anthropology, our human nature. We in ourselves are not just totally depraved. We are defiant even before we know what's right. We don't want to do it. Have you ever trained your child three steps to tell a lie? Or four ways to steal the cookie from the cookie jar? No, how do they learn that? It's in us. We need to realize that God, when it comes to his law, the fact that he himself wrote it with his finger on rock tells me what? The source of God's word is God himself. The source is divine, but you know what else it tells me? The authority is God's in his word. And you know what else it tells me? It's eternal. It lasts forever. I think the biggest problem in our postmodern society today is a loss of absolutes that comes because we lack authority, the authority of God's word for our lives. I'm talking about evangelicals. We're no longer believing the Bible is the word of God. It kind of becomes the word of God. It contains, uh-uh, it is from God. Source, authority, and therefore we are accountable to the word. The second thing it reminds me about ourselves, that we in ourselves cannot keep the law. The whole purpose why God gave the law, as Paul explains to the church in Galatia, is, is to show us that we are sinners. We're going to blow it even before we greet it. We, we're not going to keep it. Every religion I work with in world religions are trying to be good. It's, boil it down, it's basically salvation by good works. You work your way up. Here we see God coming down. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5 and verse 8, God commends his love towards us. And we're going to see something. God's law is perfect. You know why? The law of God is an expression of the heart of God. If God is perfect, what he says is perfect. And what he requires is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. So what does the law do? It tells us we are not. It shows us we can't. In fact, it brings us to the God who's able to do it for us. It's only grace that God comes down. And in this passage, we see Yahweh rewriting. No, he says, Moses, you carve the stones. It's the same law. But it's a second chance. God doesn't lower his standard. Oh yeah, you guys can't keep it, so let me kind of lower the bar. He doesn't lower the standard. The standard is still perfect. He gives us grace to keep it, to fulfill it. 
And I think this is very important as we see God graciously renewing his covenant. He's actually restating who he is and what he's going to do for his people. This message I want to end by highlighting our failures and God's faithfulness. I want us to see as this chapter ends something of the glory that Moses reflected. But this glory I want to show you is a fading glory. What I want to leave us this morning is with the unfading eternal glory. Moses was the moon who will reflect the glory. Jesus is the sun who is the source of that inherent glory of the father. And I think the writer to the Hebrews actually belabors that point in order to, in so many levels, highlight and underline that Christ is superior, greater, much, much greater than Moses, Melchizedek, anyone, the angels. The other thing I want to talk about today in regard to this unfailing God, a God, Yahweh of Exodus, who does not fail his people in spite of whatever they do, is to show us how God reveals himself. I find it very most interesting because in Exodus 33, verse 13 and verse 18, you see Moses saying, Lord, show me your glory. I want more of you. Yeah, I know you talk to me, but, but show me more of you. Church, what's our one desire? Why do we come to church? Well, seriously, uh, what am I living for? Oh, I want to get my degree. I want to make sure I do ministry for God. You know, I work with a lot of collegiate people, and I realize a lot of them ultimately are very single and miserable and even discontent because they live life like it's all about myself. The way I look, my shape, my intellect, my future. You know what? We're going to see it's not about us. And this message is for our generation who are so inward looking. I want to see, show you that Moses' face shone and people were scared. But Moses himself didn't see his face. Moses did not take a selfie and put it on Facebook and say, Aha, I talked to God. That's what I would do and you would do. Not Moses. There's something we can learn from Moses this morning. But let me talk about the first part. How does God manifest his glory to Moses? Sights and sounds, right? Smoke. All the fireworks. No, 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 no. Just re read the text. God says, Moses, go and put yourself, hide yourself actually in the, in the cleft of that rock. And by the way, I will cover you with my hands. And I will pass by. And now you will see my back. Now, when you see those words, you're like, what did he see? Well, that's not the point. The point is Moses could not directly encounter God. There had to be something in between him and this glaring presence of God. But his face shone. It's very interesting if you read the Septuagint, uh, and even more important, the Vulgate, they translate the same word shine as horns. So if you see Michelangelo's picture of Moses, Moses got horns. <laughs> well, the, the, the point is that God mediates his presence in a very particular way. He says, I will pass by and I will speak. I've got to read that to you. You've got to read this from the word of God. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Let me read verse 5. Very interesting. The Lord descended in the cloud and the Lord stood with Moses there 
And listen to the next phrase. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. He didn't do sights and sounds. And, you know, today so much of Christianity is showtime. I'm not joking. Even preaching. Look at my tie. You like my tie? It's red. It matches my shirt. You know, the, the, the choir. What a performance it was. Church, this is most important. God reveals himself through his word. He says, this is who I am. This is God's self-disclosure. In fact, we cannot know God till God makes himself known to us. Now, God is IDing himself. Now, what would he say? Holy, 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 right? Just and righteous in all my ways. Is that how God introduces himself? Thank God. This becomes the definitive statement for Yahweh throughout the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms. This becomes the way Israel now begins to relate to God, especially when they fall in sin. How do they see God? The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious. This God who is full of Compassion. He suffers with us. He pities us like a father would pity a child who is messed up. The prodigal father who runs to meet his wayward boy. This is our God. How do you know he's gracious? Well, because he's slow to anger. In other words, he's got a long fuse. He doesn't get ticked off. He's patient. That is a sign. That is a way in which we know God doesn't give up. Now Moses got a lot of impatience. You remember that? I got another sermon on Moses called Strike Three in Your Home. And that's true. It's not about baseball. Moses had a way of striking out. With one strike, he killed two Egyptians. Remember that? He strikes these two tablets and destroys it. And the third time he strikes a rock and God says, you're coming home. That's it. Three strikes, he's home. He had a problem with his temper. God says, I won't do that. You know why this was a concern? Because if you read verse 18, God says, you know what, Moses? These prostituting, apostate, rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked. That's what he calls them, people. They are not with me. They're not going to follow me. I'm not going to go with them. I'm not going to go with them. See ya. Now, you know, I've had relatives like that. I still have a brother like that. Where if he gets mad, he doesn't talk to us. He, he cuts us off Facebook. He takes our you know, WhatsApp. You, know, you can't communicate to him. He's mad. That's it. I'm not going to talk to you. I, I, any of you have relations in Asia like that? Hey, there you go. You're not even Asian. But, you know, this is very interesting. I mean, you get mad, you don't talk to him. Okay, that's it. I had it. I told you. That's I'm not going to talk to you. God says, that's not how I'm going to be. But not only am I slow to anger, let me tell you what I'm abounding in. In steadfast love, in hesed. I will give, 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 and even forgive, forgive, forgive. Aren't you glad God is gracious? Yes, God is good. He said, I'll give you. He's the God of the second. No, he's the God of yet another chance. He forgives and forgives and gives. Church, this is our God. This is how we must reflect his character. How have you treated those who have offended you this week? But then there's something else in this statement that's a little bit worrying. 
God's presence is mediated through a personal relationship, but it is enscripturated. It becomes what they call propositional truth. It's something that not an experience, oh, I forgot, only Moses did. God says, write it down, because everybody else can know. You see, when you write down something, it's propositional truth. You can go back. There's an objectivity to it. It's not just, I feel God now. I don't feel him there. When it's in the Bible, it's there, whether you believe it or not. This is how God comes to us, through his word. That's why I'm really worried about the evangelical church. We're going away from the word of God. And we want to have experience. You can't have experience of God apart from the word of God. You say, I want to find the will of God. No, you want to know the will of God? It's in the, in the Word of God. That's basic. My mentor, John Stott, is to often say to me, I still remember, God speaks through what he's spoken. Read it. Follow the instructions. And so we come to this part, second part, which is a bit worrying because God says, you know what, Moses? There's something else. Yes, I'm slow to anger. My anger is slow, but it's sure. God may work slowly, but he's going to work surely if you keep singing, sinning. It's kind of funny because I said that. I once read a church blopper you know, outside. Somebody messed up the sign. It says, come to church. We'll have a whole day of preaching and singing. They wanted to say singing. They said a whole day of preaching and sinning. <laughs> um, so sometimes it's close. But this, this unpopular attribute of God. Listen, he says, I will visit the sins. I'm not going to just just wink at you. You're going to be guilty, and that's rightly so. But what bothers me is to the second and the third generation, to the father's children and their children, and you're sitting and thinking, what did the grandkids do? Poor kids. Church, our sin is because we make choices, right? And our choices have consequences. And the consequence is not just for us. It affects our children and our children's children, for good or for bad. In pastoral counseling, there's so much I've seen of people whose parents were addicted in so many ways, whether it's alcohol or pornography, and it's amazing how it affects the family, the grandkids. But when you see you have a mom and a dad who gets up and says, no Bible, no breakfast, and they see you always with an open Bible, guess what? I don't have to tell my daughters. They're already doing it without even me telling me. They're away from home and Karis is somewhere else. Guess what she's doing this morning? She's opening a Bible and writing a journal. Where'd she learn that from? I think God visited. He's gracious to me. I often say it's not because of me. It's probably because of her mother. But anyway, you know, it's important to realize it affects the next generation. But you see, how do you reconcile God's justice with his love? Well, here are two important truths. Well, number one, when we try, it's called theodicy, trying to reconcile how can a just God be a good God if he punishes evil and sends people to hell. Have you asked, you remember that question people ask you? Here's two basic problems with that proposition. Well, number one, the Lord your God is one. You cannot divide God and say this is his good part and this is his just part. He's both good and just. The second thing I want to tell us, we are finite. God is infinite. We are caught in matter, space, and time. God is the God of eternity. So let's humble ourselves because in this mystery, there is paradox. And in this paradox, there's the gift of grace. Where is this best seen? Where do you see justice and love?
come together? Where do we see righteousness and peace kiss each other? Answer, at the cross. Let me give an illustration. Let me talk about a judge. And you say, well, that's a good judge. We've been appointing judges these days. So we want a good judge. But let me ask you, if somebody was on drugs and went into a park and mowed down kids and killed them, and you went and stood in front of the judge and you say, judge, you know what? It happens. You're a good judge. Just let us go. Sorry, we won't do it again. Is he a good judge if he lets you go? Answer? No. Why? Because a good judge has to be a just judge. And you're not a good judge till you're a just judge. A just judge is a good judge. God is good. Yeah, but he has to be judge. And he will just. He's jealous for that sense. Well, I, uh, people have asked me what I did the last two weeks. I was in Pakistan, the border of Afghanistan, very close to Kabul. I put this up because it's all over the news. Christianity Today has mentioned it. I was hunkered down, unable to travel for almost two years now. My heart is with the nations, as you know. And when I decided which country to go during spring break, one of our co-workers in Peshawar, Pastor Siraj, while he came out of church in his car, as you can see in this clip from the newspaper, an ISIS guy came and blew and killed us. And uh, it's one thing to go to these countries and sit in these fancy hotels and teach trainers. I do leadership training for Krista, as you know. It's another thing to suffer with those who suffer and show solidarity. So I told my friend Elias, I said, I'm going. We want to be with these people. And uh, the ambassador for, for Pakistan in D.C. is a good friend of mine, Am Amjad Khan. He called me and he said, I'll give you the visa. So I said, that's great. And I went. And you can see me sitting with an envelope that my students and some pastors signed. And I gave it to his widow wife. You know, the only place I see a definition for religion is James 1 and verse 27. True religion before God is what? To visit the, the widows. And I said, we need this kind of ministry. I sat there. There was another from the State Department, a person. He said, we will find the perpetrator. Don't worry. We got to, I said, we got a picture. But in these countries... You just look the other side. There's, Christians are a minority, trust me. We don't have any voice, and I mean, there's no equal rights stuff in these countries. So I, I went there, and I said, what do you do? You say, Allah Akbar, and God is great. And he said, no, we will find the perpetrator. Well, I took the sun, because a week after that, I heard in the news, and I was already bought my ticket. I was with Qatar Airlines. I was, I was going anyway. But I heard something happened in Pakistan. You probably read it. It was in Christianity Today. A Shiite mosque, there was a, a bomber, a suicide bomber who went. He gunned down people, two people were at the door. He went in again, shot down about three or four others. He was charging in this masjid, in this prayer, prostration prayer of, uh, of, during the Salat, during the time of prayer. And he's heading to the Mirabah, the pulpit kind of area where the imam is. And somebody tagged him down. And he detonated himself and he blew up and killed 53 people. There were 85 and more when I went there. So I went inside the mosque and met with the Shiites and the Sunnis, these two groups, if you study Islam. I said, is, is this Islam, is this a religion of peace, really? Does it look like peace? And I said, why don't you get together? I said, issue a fatwa or condemn this act from the ISIS. Stand against it. Be brave. 
But then there was someone else who joined us. The government of Syria sent us their flag to say this is a cowardice act. And all of them said, no, this is not religion. This is not even Muslim. This is Al-Qaeda. This is, this is not, not religion. And when there was a bishop guy who came there to be part of this reconciliation meeting that I had, you can see him at the end with a large cross. I took the opportunity to share the gospel. And I said to them, you know, God is great. I said, you remember the story of Adam, uh, of Adam? He had two children, Cain and Abel. And Cain killed his brother Abel. And Abel's innocent blood cried out for vengeance and justice. You remember that? God had to mark Cain. And they were all like, yeah, Allah Akbar, God is great. We need vindication. God will judge. Allah will judge. And I said to them, and I knew I was speaking on this passage. Pastor Milt was kind enough to switch. And I said to them, there was another innocent blood that also cried out. But it didn't cry out for vengeance or even for justice. It cried out for forgiveness and mercy to those who crucified him. Isa Masih, Jesus, the Messiah. Now Muslims believe in the virgin birth. They believe in, in the sinless life of Jesus. Did you know that? They even believe that Jesus did miracles. Muhammad himself didn't do any miracles. They even believe that Isa is coming back with the Mahdi to get the whole world and the infidels to submit to the one God. But one thing they don't believe is the death and resurrection that we will celebrate. Church, do you understand that this definitive character of our God that Moses here mediates to his people, that God is merciful and compassionate. He is a gracious God. That's where we are stranded. You don't want justice. If God gave us justice, we'd, we'll all be in hell. We need mercy, like blind Bartimaeus. I sent that last picture to Pastor Mill just to tease him. Uh, I just said, you know, it's, 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 God was with me, but it's also helps when you have a bodyguard with the AK-47 kind of clearing the way as you went. I really felt like a celebrity. Anyway, so let me, let me leave you with a few thoughts about Moses. You know, we're going to leave Moses. We've done a great study. And uh, summarizing Moses, what do you know about Moses? Yes, he was the leader, the greatest leader. As I just read, there was no one else like a prophet in Israel, like whom God knew, like face to face. Even in Jesus' day, they said, like, law came through Moses. Are you greater than Moses? Even today, they have Moses' seats in synagogue, where the place where you, you mediate the, the law. But let me tell you something else about Moses. And I'm speaking to leaders right now. They're like, I'm not a leader. Thank you, Chris. No, no, listen, uh, if you're a dad, a father, if you're a mother, if you have any influence, you're a leader. Because leadership is defined by influence. So let me say, Moses teaches us something. Moses is essentially a mediator. Now follow me. God is on top of the mountain, the cloud, right? The people can't even come to the foot, not even their herds to be around, right? Who's in between? Moses. What is he doing? Well, essentially two things. He's hearing from God the word and he's bringing the word to the people. Did you see that? That's what we do as Christian leaders. That's what our pastoral teaching team is here to do. Primarily to bring God to his word. Not about us, our illustrations, our sermon. It's about God's word 
as BJ often reminds us. That's what we are here for, to bring the word of God. But listen, you know what else Moses does? Now turn that picture around. He brings the word of God to the people. He takes the problems of the people and their prayers and he offers them to God. What we see in this section is a tremendous intercessory role that we are able to listen into and to mimic, to imitate. Uh, Moses certainly was a Middle Eastern guy. He knew how to bargain. Any of you been to the Middle East? I mean, in Eastern, we bargain for everything. I have an uncle who bargains. It just embarrasses me. Someone says something is 100 rupees. He'll say, give it for five rupees. I'm like, are you serious? At least start with like, you know, 70 or something. But he'll walk away with it. I'm surprised. Moses is a little bit like that. He says, God, listen. Would you come with us? I mean, what do you mean you're not coming with us? These are your people. If you read verse 18, so many times, these are your people. They're called them by your name. This is your promise to them. Wow. He's like, what are you going to do? What are, what are the other nations going to say to you about you? If you give up on your people. Wow, what a way to interact. You know what Moses is doing? You know what he's doing in terms of mediation? He's showing solidarity with his people. Technically, if you look at the verse, it's singular, I will be with you, Moses. But he's saying, listen, <laughs> you better be with this people. It's your people too, and I belong to them. How many leaders do you know do that? I mean, I don't want to go into this. Moses even says that you can wipe my, you can take my book, name out of the book of life. I'll go to hell as long as you take these people to heaven. Now, I'm telling you what, I like Chantilly Bible Search, but not that much. <laughs> I'm telling you, Paul had that, he says, I, I would be accursed so that the Jews would come to know Jesus as Messiah. Church, do you have that longing for people? Moses was a mediator, a go-between. We need leaders like that. Not who isolate themselves. Oh, see my face? It's so glorious. I took a selfie. Nah, nah. I've been with God. You know what Moses did? He stepped down. He came. He veiled his face and he taught the people the law of God. And he would say, listen, you better keep the law. Especially the Sabbath. And by the way, three times a year, go to those feeds, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, go there. He said, ah, if we go, someone will rob the house. He says, God's got your back. Nothing's going to happen. I like that little verse. He says, let everyone who appears before God bring something. Church, think about that. See the principle. Did you come to church? What did you bring in worship? It's usually like, what am I going to get out of the sermon? Or is, am I, do I feel good after this worship type? It had nothing to do with church. Everyone brought something to the presence of God. That's been part of the Judeo-Christian faith. To bring something. Offer a sacrifices of praise unto God. I like that. One verse which says, by the way, you shall not cook the kid of the goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, how do I preach that? Kosher? Have you heard of kosher? Halal? Well, that's where we get it from one verse. What's he saying? <gasps> Don't have cheeseburgers. Because the cheese could be cooked from the mother goat whose kid is the hamburger. <laughs> now, you laugh at this, but they took it seriously because in the stomach, guess what happens? It cooks. Now, I know, I know, some of you, I, I don't understand it either, but listen, you read this and you realize this is for a purpose. Moses says, God, not only go with us, Please keep forgiving us. And by the way, repossess us as your people. Because people are going to see us. They're going to see you in us. And we have to be your witnesses, right? 
You see, that's why he took them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Why did he take them? In order to worship God. Why do they worship God? Because the, those who do not know the name of God will come to worship God. John Piper's thesis that we were created for worship and mission exists because worship doesn't. People are going to see us worship and say, you know what? I see this guy. I see how he loves his God. I see how his God provides for him. I see how God is his pride. I want to be like him. Without saying a word, we can be our witness if we reflect the nature of God. I summarize Moses' life very simply. His name literally means to be drawn out of water, right? Moses means to draw out. But you know what? He learned to draw near to God. James 4 and verse 6. Draw nigh unto God. But you know why he drew near to God? So that other people would be drawn to the glory of God. That's a wonderful way. From a baby in the bulrushes of the Nile to a 120-year-old leader, still good eyesight, on Mount Nebo seeing the promised land, but never entering. What can we learn about leaders? Let me say something about this shining face of Moses and how he relates to his people. He not only teaches them to worship God, to recognize his worship because he shows grace. That's the word favor. He is constantly forgiving. And more than anything else, his greatness is in his faithfulness. And they are new every morning. But this great teacher says, listen, don't go after those other gods. And if you read the passage, you know what he says? When you go into the land, smash all those idols. You see those totem rods? I mean, just destroy them, burn it, get rid of everything. And you're like, my goodness, that's a little bit over, isn't it? No, you don't have to get... Well, that's what happens. He says, you know why? Because they will allure you. They will be a snare. And that's so true. See how it starts. We, we watch soap operas, and then it becomes pornography. And now we're looking with gender issues, and beastity, and necromancing. And you're like, where, how did... Ah! You're like, hey, you know what happened? It started right there with the soap operas. We said, is that nothing? Because, you know, here's the formula. You say, well, we're just friends. James 4 and verse 4. Friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. But friends become lovers. Right? 1 John 2.15 says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What happens to lovers? They get married and become relatives. And what happens? Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. You're conformed to the world rather being renewed by your mind. This is a slippery slope. And Moses realized this. And he says, listen, I want you to know this. So he would speak to God with his face uncovered. And then he comes and he would cover his face. Now here's the interesting part. Why is it that Moses covered his face? Of course, the people saw the glory of God and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. It reminds us of our sin and God's holiness. Please put your burqa on or you know, the, 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 cover your face. But Paul has an interesting twist. In fact, if you read, Paul actually, his interpretation is so helpful. And he capitalizes on this event or the phenomenon. And this is what he says. The reason why Moses covered his face is because Moses realized every time he went away from God's presence, what happened to that shine? It began to fade. And he realized that people are going to notice that the glory has what? Ichabod, it's gone. So he's like, 
Because every time he opened his face and they didn't see his glory, he's like, maybe Moses didn't have his quiet time today. So they're like, oh, you've got, you got to be careful. So he covered his face. Now listen to this. This is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Please read chapter 3, verse 8, especially verse 16 to 18. Paul says, while Moses' glory was fading, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And this is the inerrant, unfading, eternal glory of God. Wow. That never fades. Because Moses was the moon. Does the moon have its own light? Jesus is the sun. He is the source of all light and life and liberty. This is very important. And as we spend time with Jesus, we are being changed from glory to glory. How? When we keep in his presence. So very important, church. To remember this, we've gone through the book of Exodus. We are summarizing things. Moses has a lot to teach us. It's not about me. It's not about you or us as a church. It's about the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But if we've been with Jesus, it's like the early apostles. You remember the disciples? Acts chapter 4 verse 13. They were unlearned, uncouth. They beat them up. But you know what? One thing they knew. That they had been with Jesus. How did they know that? Church, when you and I spend time with Jesus, with God and his word and in fellowship, when we go out of those doors, people must see we have been with because Jesus is the glory of God. But here's the sad part, and I want to leave you with this note. It's pretty sad when you think about how all this ends. It's not only the story of Moses. Exodus starts and ends with the glory of God that leads to worship. God is perfect, morally perfect in his holiness. But because of his grace, he can relate to us. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So you ask John, who was close to Jesus. What do you mean, John? He says, Nyanakin, we have seen his glory. Where did you see his glory? Well, ask Peter. Peter, have you seen his glory? Second mm -hmm. Peter chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. We are eyewitnesses of the majestic glory, Shekinah, of God. Where did you see that, Peter? Ask James. Well, where did you see it, Peter, James, and John? Will Moses ever see the glory of God again? Because last time he talked to God, although it says face to face, God had his, in a, in his hand to cover him. People wanted to come to God. A mountain separated them. They built an ark of the covenant, put God in the temple, put him in a box, and there was a veil that separated people. Is there a time when that veil will be unveiled? At the cross. What happened to the veil at the temple? From top to bottom. Who did it? Because of Jesus. Moses did speak to God face to face when Jesus had that sneak preview and gave them a glimpse of the glory of God, not on Sinai, but on what would be Mount Hebron, the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Moses and Elijah and the glory of God in the face of Jesus, unmitigated glory of God. Satan blinds our eyes 
2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. You know why he blinds our eyes? Because this glory is in the gospel of Jesus. And if we see the gospel and we get it, then we come to Christ. And Satan does not want us to come to Christ. He blinds our eyes. But you know, Jesus transforms us from glory to glory. One of the things we ask ourselves, is there practical ways and steps in which you and I, this week, can reflect the glory of God in our homes where we live, more so as witnesses to the light of the world. And by the way, Jesus is the light of the world. And he says to us in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine. Why? So that people in darkness, that Gentile, they will see your good works and glorify, glorify your Father in heaven. Church, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. You know, Moses on Mount Nebo sees the promised land. But he doesn't enter it. God says, no, Moses, you will see it, but you won't enter the land. You know, when you read about Moses, the greatest leader and lawgiver, you feel like going to God and say, listen, Abraham blew it so many times. He created the Middle East crisis with his marriage problems. Why, you, you forgave Abraham. Why can't you forgive Moses? You say, God, Jonah, you remember Jonah? He's anything but a missionary. But anyway, God forgave the guy and gave him a second chance. Why can't you give Moses a second chance? Don't you think so? You see, Peter, he blew it time after time again. And God gave Peter a second, third. God, please give Moses another chance. But you see, Moses died with what Paul calls in Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory, which is in Christos. Christ in us is the hope of glory. That glory of God appeared, embodied in the grace of God. Titus 1 and verse 11 and 12, that came when Jesus came. I want to leave you with an illustration. I like to drink my coffee like the Middle Eastern people. Ah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Pastor Milt and uh, I also found out Bill, uh, we, we are all addicted. Uh, we don't do drugs, but we drink a lot of coffee. We love coffee. There, there's coffee in heaven, by the way. In case you didn't know, I, I checked it out theologically. There's a whole book called Hebrews. Okay, um, so we have coffee. <laughs> Um, when it comes to coffee, you know, uh, and I get my coffee and I buy it and they pour it, it, it's like really hot. But you need it in a cup, right? The cup holds the coffee. Without the cup, you can't drink your coffee. You need a cup to hold the coffee. And because it's so hot, usually what I grab, what is this? A sleeve. So I need a sleeve. What does the sleeve do? The hot coffee, it takes the heat. But then there's something else. Uh, oops, sorry. As I keep drinking this, I usually take a napkin. Let me say this. I think of where I teach. The actual founder of Liberty University is a guy called Elmer Towns. There's a whole auditorium that was named after him. But recently I had him and asked my students, nobody even knew who Elmer Towns was. He's actually the real founder. 
Jerry actually started the church and then the university came. He's the one who was the architect for the university. Nobody knew Elmer Townsend. Who's Steve Austin? You ask the younger people. I had to get to know him after his wife's death. Someone's going to say, who's that Indian guy? You know, the dark guy came with all these jokes and coffee cups and cool guy. Who's that guy? You know, the, he had a funny accent. What's his name? Shenanigan. I forget. I mean, there's a, who, who is that guy? Who, who's Milt? We had a pastor called Milt Johnson. You know, he stuck through, uh, through the pandemic, everything. He hung in there. Quite a good pastor. You know, people forget us. Moses was forgotten. God himself had to bury Moses. If he didn't, they would have mummied him after he dead and kind of worshipped the guy. Sometimes leaders, are you listening to me, mom and dad? We are like the cup. During this pandemic, you hold things together. That's what leaders do. You hold it together. Other times, you're like the sleeve. You have to take the heat. And there's a lot of heat if you're in ministry. Trust me. So you may hold things together. You take the heat. And many times you have to clean up the mess. You hold it together, you take the heat, and you clean the mess. That's what we do. Moses, Moses did that. Moses knew that. But you know one thing Moses had to realize, we realize, sometimes we're the cup holding things together. Sometimes we're the sleeve taking the heat. Other times we're like a napkin. People use us and throw us. But one thing, you're not the coffee. The glory is God's. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us your glory. Thank you, Lord, for Moses who communicates that to us. Thank you for Chantilly Bible Church. And Lord, uh, as we continue to teach, and I be part of the team, but not so often, I pray, Lord, that you will teach us these principles that we may always say to God, be the glory. Your kingdom will come and your will be done. To God be the glory.